As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. In today's episode, we're exploring the history of plagues and pandemics, and how Christian communities at different periods in history responded to these recurring times of crisis. In an age of coronavirus, what do we have to learn by looking back at times when the world was, as today, convulsed by devastating infections? So, uh, John, thanks for uh, dialing in. Um, You've been doing a bit of reading about the history of plagues, ancient plagues in the Greco-Roman world um, ever since the pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic started. Uh, Can you tell us some of the things you've been finding out? Sure, yeah. So uh, it's interesting that um, Christians have always faced plague. It's it's been a a regular occurrence, and particularly in the ancient world, uh, when these these terrible plagues were, were very well known. Um, there was something called the Plague of Cyprian that um, affected the Roman Empire in the third century, and um, it, there was a particularly bad outbreak in Rome, and it was said that five thousand people a day were were dying in the city of Rome. So, you know, here we are in London. Here I am in London, and it's pretty bad at the moment, but it's not as bad as it was then. And the descriptions of what was going on in those ancient plagues are quite horrific because um, everybody knew that this was some horrible infection. So they kind of pushed people out into the streets. When they discovered infected people in the households, um, they used to push them out uh, into the streets. And so there are these first-hand descriptions of really quite horrific scenes of um, people dying. Uh, There's someone called Pontius of Carthage said that uh, afterwards there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease invading every house in succession. All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself. There lay about the meanwhile over the whole city no longer bodies but the carcasses of many. So it's a kind of horrific scene. And, um, you know, one of the fascinating things to me as a doctor is that it's pretty clear that the 
first thing that the Hippocratic physicians did was to run for the hills. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the physicians didn't stay around. They knew their lives were at risk. So hang on, these Hippocratic physicians, um, these are kind of like proto-early doctors, are they? What, what exactly was their role? They're not exactly this similar to what doctors today were up to. Yeah, in fact, they were an interesting sort of rather esoteric sect of of physicians. The, the majority of healers were herbalists and, and actually connected with mystery religions. And um, But the Hippocratic physicians, starting in about 3rd or 4th century before Christ, had differentiated themselves um, and, and gained a kind of professional status. And they they took this solemn binding oath and said that they would dedicate themselves solely to um, the good of humanity. They would use their skills not never to kill or to harm, but only to heal. But they were a pretty minority group. And some people have said if it wasn't for the Christians and the rise of the Christian church, then only a few sort of ancient Greek scholars would know anything about Hippocrates and the Hippocratic group sect. It was really because of the rise of Christianity uh, in the subsequent era that... that um, Hippocrates became much better known, but because at this time, doctors talking... today they still they still take the Hippocratic oath, or at least some of them do. I think when they finish medical school, it's still kind of embedded in the concept of what it means to be a doctor today. It is, and it's a very very interesting story because what happened was that Christianity, starting as a very small minority religion in in Palestine. Um, took on the role of caring and they uh, Christians realized there was a kind of um, similarity between the Hippocratic physicians who actually came out of a pagan Greek probably Pythagorean mystery religion uh, but there was this very interesting similarity between the Hippocratic concern to protect human life and the Christian uh, idea that human beings were made in God's image and so it's what historians Called the Hippocratic Christian Consensus, it, it became a a, um, a joining between these two uh, religions. And what happened is that the Hippocratic Oath, which started with a sort of oaths to pagan gods, uh, was Christianized. And so, instead of swearing by Asclepius and Hygieia and by all the gods <laughs> and goddesses, um, Christians said, "I swear by Almighty God." And uh, that Hippocratic Christian consensus has continued actually all the way in the origins of, of the Western medical profession and all the way up until the present time. And as you say, uh, many medical schools still uh, have a modern version of the Hippocratic Oath and, and people, when they qualify, take that oath. Mm. But what's fascinating about these plagues in the early Roman period is that actually this is before the consensus forms because... As far as I understand it, the Hippocratic physicians run for the hills. They're fairly high-status, wealthy individuals who can afford to flee the slums of Rome in the city where the disease is running riot, and it's left to the early Christian church to do the bulk of, of the caring for those who are infected. Yeah, well, that's right. And one of the interesting things is that um, it was a general teaching among the Hippocratic group is that you should never care for a dying patient. Um, and probably the reason for this was that it would be bad for your professional reputation. You know, if your patient died, what kind of physician were you? And and therefore, basically, dying patients were neglected and ignored by, um, by doctors, and particularly at a time of plague. So you have to imagine this kind of scene where 
the doctors have run for the hills. In fact, it's also been suggested that if you, if you read the ancient medical textbooks written by these physicians, for most diseases, they gave very precise and accurate clinical descriptions. But when it comes to plague, surprise, surprise, the descriptions are surprisingly vague and impressionistic. Um, and that probably, again, reflects the fact that they just didn't stick around. Hmm. And that's true, isn't it? Because the, the reason it's called the Plague of Cyprian is it refers to a Christian bishop called Cyprian, who has provided to this day the most kind of accurate and detailed description of what actually happened to people who got infected. Yeah, well, that's right. So isn't it fascinating that a Christian bishop uh, writes this detailed clinical description of what plague is like? And uh, in, in fact, the, he describes diarrhoea, he describes um, vomiting, he describes fever, and um and hemorrhage um and it's nobody knows exactly what the infections were in these ancient times but but cyprian's description is actually very similar to ebola uh, what what's called hemorrhagic viral infections which have a very high mortality so why was it that a christian bishop um was able to describe um, plague with such accuracy and, and I think the historical uh, evidence is that the Christians responded very differently so so you have to imagine the here these terrible descriptions of bodies in the street and people uh, dying in agony and the pagans just pushing them out into putting out their loved ones and neighbors into the streets and so in these cities there's a small gap band of weirdos of, of, of this strange new religion and they had various names they were sometimes called the atheists because they didn't have any idols in their houses and churches or they were sometimes called Galileans or Nazarenes um, but what the first-hand descriptions are is that the Christians go out into the streets and care for the um, the people who are dying they bring them back into their own homes they wash their wounds, they uh, feed them, they give them fluids, and, and many of the Christians die because they too become infected. Um, but this extraordinarily self-sacrificial way of caring is something that the ancient world had never seen. I've heard before as well that, that that there is a lot of um, speculation or at least thinking that it was some of the Christians' actions in these times of crisis, of emergency and their kind of selflessness, which helped begin to shift public opinion, which turned them from a kind of despised, fairly reviled, tiny, weird Jewish cult into um, ultimately a few hundred years later, what would become the official religion of, of the empire. Yeah, that's right. There's a very interesting guy called Rodney Stark, who's um, a social historian and sociologist. And he's um, studied in, in detail the uh, explosive growth of the early church in the Roman Empire. And he points out that it starts with a, you know, a group of a few hundred um, in around A.D. 30 and 40 um, and then there is an exponential growth so that within three centuries this this has, has risen to 
estimates of you know vary between five and ten million and and up to fifty percent of the entire Roman Empire will, is now calling themselves Christians and and so he's saying how is it possible that you get this explosive growth over three centuries particularly because it wasn't done under the force of arms most mm. most religions grow in historically because of warfare and uh, political and military conquest but here was a strange mystery religion that grew exponentially uh, without there being a military or political power at all and one of the explanations that Stark comes on is the is the behavior of Christians at time of plague and he mm. says that he thinks both that many of the pe people the pagan people who were brought into the Christian homes may well have survived because they basically got decent nursing care uh, but in addition observers of this you know would have never seen anything like this and people said I want to be part of that I mean this is just so amazing I want to, um, to be part of this this new movement and some of the accounts are quite striking particularly when you think as you said that this is this is a hemorrhagic fever this you know the closest thing we have to think about maybe would be Ebola and you know while you know COVID-19 is a very nasty illness and and causes a lot of suffering um it's something quite else when people are bleeding from their eyeballs and vomiting and diarrhea and and you know internal multiple organ failure and and yet christians are going out into the streets where people have been chucked and taking them into their own homes um obviously putting themselves at immense risk of catching this this disease i mean there was one account by uh, a christian called dionysius who lived in alexandria around the time and and um he, he writes this, most of the Christian brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, heedless of the danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, cheerfully drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. You can easily understand how, you know, in a culture which has become used to the those who have status and wealth and power immediately getting out of the dodge when when the plague arrives it's remarkable in scenes of kind of carnage and terror to see this small band of strange atheists do acts of incredible kind of selfless sacrificial love yeah no i think so and, and you can you can imagine you know the ancient world had never seen anything like this if, if you go back and you read about the greco-roman ethics the attitudes and so on it was it was a a culture which prized what they call the masculine virtues that these were you know of strength of vigor of um, intelligence uh, leadership power and they despised the weak and the sick and the vulnerable and so to see um, ordinary lay people uh, doing this kind of self-sacrificial caring and of course where had the Christians got this from? Well, they got it from Jesus of Nazareth and and his example of servant leadership and particularly the examples of the ways that he touched the lepers and he washed the feet and he cared for the lowest of the low. And, and so deeply rooted in this new Christian faith was an idea of sacrificial service and that we are serving Christ in as much as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters you did it to me mm. it's worth noting of course that um i've just been reading through acts at the moment and what i've been struck this time is is how brutally honest 
Luke, the writer of Acts, is about the falling out between some of the key figures of the church and that you get the picture that as wonderful as Paul and Peter and James were, they, they're no saints and they made bad decisions and they got grumpy and they had silly squabbles. And um, I guess yeah, yeah. I'm just always ultra wary when you look back at, at, at Christians telling themselves stories that paint themselves in, in a brilliant light and kind of pat ourselves on the back because it's exactly how we would hope Christians... Um, Christians acted in those times. I mean, Dionysus himself was a Christian, so obviously, I don't know how accurate or not whether whether that source is backed up by other sources. But you have to kind of be slightly wary about reading stories that are so perfect and just so stories that fit into all what we'd hope would would have, yeah. would have taken place. No, I, I think that's fair comment. Um, but I th- there is other historical evidence of the uh, extraordinary actions of Christians in um in these times um in fact um one of the there's a famous letter by an emperor i think his name is julian um and he's writing complaining he's a pagan and he's trying to uh, oppose the growth of these galileans and he's actually complaining of the way that they behave um so uh, you know, uh, complaining about the fact that they're showing compassion and caring. And he says that they're not only caring for their own poor, they're caring for ours as well. Hmm. And 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 so I, I think, yes, I mean, obviously one, one can't take it as absolute um, gospel truth, but I, I think there is quite strong historical evidence that Christians behaved in a, in a very different way. And I have to say, you know, speaking as somebody who's a 21st century medic, and a professional carer, you know, I often, uh, you know, when I read these accounts, I, I feel unworthy to be called by the same name. Um, because um, in general, you know, Christian medics are not expected to behave in a self-sacrificial way. I mean, and it's possible for modern day medics to have come to the conclusion that actually you know, being a doctor is just a nice, stable, well-paid, high-status, interesting job. Um, and it's a time of pandemic when you suddenly are brought back to this realisation that actually there are serious risks involved here, that, that we're called to put our lives on the line for others who, who need us. Hmm. And what I find really fascinating about reading these accounts is I have a similar reaction. You know, I feel very unworthy and very challenged because it feels like you know, would I be prepared to go out there and if people were, you know, vomiting and blood and bleeding from their eyeballs in the streets, would I go and welcome them into my home and put my family at risk? Um, and then at the same time, I'm struck by the thought, well, hang on, given what we now know about infection and contagion, and at a time when we've been told everything we must do is the most loving thing we can do is stay at home, what does it look like for Christians? You know, we now know that some of those selfless Christians in the ancient world probably helped spread the disease around by going from house to house, caring and nursing for people, obviously without any PPE. Um, So it's quite a complex issue. It's simultaneously very humbling and yet quite kind of knotty to think through, you know, should we want Christians to selflessly charge into the burning building, as it were, taking no heed for their own safety when we know that that actually it's not just their own safety we're concerned about, but that of the whole community? Well, and I think this is these are some of the really challenging and, and difficult ethical and spiritual issues which, which Christian medics today are facing and discussing. And I've been part of some discussions in the Christian Medical Fellowship uh, 
exactly along these lines. I mean, the modern day professional has become incredibly self-protective. Um, and, and of course, there are strong reasons why, um, as a professional, uh, you don't want to throw away your health and your life uh, needlessly. Um, because you just, you know, if you become infected at a time of pandemic, then you just become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So, so there are strong reasons as a health professional to try to protect yourself from harm. And of course, compared to the, those early Christians, we now understand much more about how this disease is spread. Um, but having said all that, um, there are many places across the world where um, the ability for health professionals to protect themselves is, is much more limited than it is here in the UK. And there are many Christians in the health professions who have made similar decisions to those early Christians in that they've been prepared to go back to the hospital and care for people, even though they knew that the personal protective equipment was substandard. I mean, there are very good examples of this at the time of the Ebola epidemic in Sierra Leone a few years ago. Uh, many of the uh, nurses and doctors who cared for Ebola victims were Christians and they they felt that God had called them uh, to care and, and they knew that the PPE was substandard, they knew that they were putting themselves in risk and yet they carried on going back to the hospitals and the clinics in order to care and some of them died and you know I, I, I feel they are the direct descendants of the Christians who died uh, back in the second and third century Absolutely. I mean, I remember at the time reading about some um, kind of volunteer doctors from places in, you know, in the kind of quote unquote comfortable West where Ebola was no threat at all, who have, you know, quit their jobs and have moved to Sierra Leone, as you say, into um, difficult situations where there isn't adequate infrastructure and protection because they felt, as I say, that was their call as, as Christian medics to to take, take themselves out of a place of safety into a place of harm to care for those at the greatest point of need. It is, um, it's remarkable. Um, and I think that we, we, none of us know what, you know, what the future of this particular pandemic will be. Um, but I think, I think there is a difference therefore in this, this is one of the differences between, um, a, a sort of purely professional approach as a medic to this crisis and a, a specifically Christian approach as a medic that yes there are lots of overlaps there's lots of similarities as Christians but there are some aspects where we say that actually protecting my skin is not the supreme value in this process I'm here to serve others and if that means I have to take certain levels of risk then so be it that's that's part of what I'm called to do and of course, the ultimate model, of course, is, is Jesus, who um, put his own life uh, on the line uh, for us, at, you know, when he had no need to. Um, I guess that's the kind of sense of living a cross-shaped faith. It is. And, and it is the, that's this extraordinary example of Jesus as the one who, who put his own life, I mean, not just on the cross, but, you know, in the way that he reached out to the leprosy victims who were shunned. Mm. Uh, in the way that he um, exposed himself to um, all the evil of um, society, um, he 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 leaves a model, 
and I think particularly the washing of the feet, um, which was again so startling and so countercultural. And then Jesus explicitly says, you know, you call me Lord and Master, and that is true because that's what I am. But if now I, your Lord and Master, have given you an example, this is how you've got to behave. So he very explicitly says, this is why, the way I've behaved. Now, if you're going to be my followers, you're going to have to behave in the same way. Let's quickly skip forward then into from the ancient Greco-Roman world into the Middle Ages, plagues and pandemics continue to kind of ravage society. We all heard, heard about the Black Death and, and stuff like that. Um, you you um, wrote a book a few years ago which touched on some of this, uh, how Christians responded to the time of kind of death and pandemic, didn't you? What did, we, what did yeah. you kind of find out? Yeah, so I, I was very interested in a whole group of um, documents that were circulating in the medieval church at the time of plagues. And they were called the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying. And they were a kind of self-help documents which were written particularly for lay people. Because um, the great fear in a plague was that death would come very suddenly and would sweep you away without any possibility of preparing yourself. Um, and in particular, you might die without the, the privilege of a priest being there to pray over you and to advise you on what it meant to die as a Christian. And in the medieval Catholic Church, to die without a priest was seen as a terrible uh, danger. And so these documents were circulating and... Um, they were intended for lay people, and somebody suggested that a modern equivalent title would be Dying for Dummies, <laughs> which I thought was a great title, and I was very tempted to use it as my book, but unfortunately the uh, the franchise already existed. <laughs> but um, So I wrote a book called Dying Well as, a, as to try and have a sort of modern version of, of these Ars Moriendi, uh, but I have to say, when I was writing the book, it didn't really cross my mind that it we might be talking about a modern pandemic, a modern plague. I was actually thinking about people dying, um, you know, with a chronic illness like cancer or um, some degenerative condition, Alzheimer's disease, and, and how as Christians we might prepare ourselves for facing death in a, in a way that is um, filled with, with faithfulness, with Christian faithfulness. Um, so and that's what's fascinating just... isn't it because because in the as you say we've come used to the idea in, in the modern era that death is not this sudden stranger in the night but is something that comes slowly and can normally be seen a way off where whereas you know maybe in some strange way this pandemic uh is is reminding us that our lives are not so much under our control and maybe we need to go back to this idea that every christian should be ready for, at any moment to die um, and not assume that that's something they can get, they can deal with in hand, and approach when they're many years in the future in their in their last few years of life. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think it's it is an extraordinary wake up call and reminder about our biological vulnerability. You know, I, I've often thought as a doctor that um, biology is often the last resort that the Almighty uses to remind people that we're not in control, that we're just human beings. And, uh, you know, you can see modern people, many of whom are like control freaks. We're all control freaks. We all think we can control our lives and plan the future. 
and then all of a sudden biology sets in steps in and all those plans are blown into the future and that's what we're seeing now in 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 a very large scale and obvious way we're seeing about our incredible human vulnerability and frailty and i have to say from a christian point of view i think that's pretty healthy it's a, it's a reminder of um of our limitations our human limitations and it is interesting again if you look at how christians respond have responded to plague over the centuries one of the ways is it's a reminder of god's sovereignty you have to say look i am not in control of my world in fact i look at the human leaders and they're not in control of their world either who is ultimately in control of this world and and the christian answer is well there is someone there is a god in heaven and ultimately everything in even this terrible virus is held within his sovereign purposes So skipping on in our whistle-stop tour forward again, uh, I guess the last kind of touchstone in modern history for anything comparable to coronavirus, people often go back to the, the flu pandemic of 1918 to 19, which is often called Spanish flu. Um, what do you think we can learn from looking back at that time in history? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the last global pandemic was clearly 1919, just 100 years ago. And uh, that... I mean, it's often been said, and uh, and the evidence is that the global that global pandemic killed more people than did in all the deaths in the First World War, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen, and horrifically, it particularly went for young adults. Um, in that sense, very different from COVID, which which targets older people. Um, but it it's interesting how again uh, people responded at that time of plague and and set up huge hospitals in fact the nightingale hospitals that have been set up in some ways are modeled on on large-scale tent-based hospitals that were set up to care for um, victims of the the flu pandemic Um, and I think again there are parallels in the way that Christians responded also interestingly um, a lot of the discussion about how removing the lockdown uh, and what the implications will be, is based on experience um, uh, at the end of the pandemic, because particularly in the States, different cities responded differently to the pandemic, and some of them opened themselves up very rapidly after the pandemic appeared to have gone. And they then had a second epidemic, which caused very high mortality, whereas other cities which continued the lockdown for longer had far fewer deaths. So this is part of the reason why there's such concern among epidemiologists about the possibility of a second wave of the virus coming and causing high mortality again. And there's even an interesting historical coincidence. I was hearing the other day that um, at the height of that second wave in 1919, um, the American president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, fell quite seriously ill, which historians now think he probably did catch the the flu. And it was right in the midst of, um, as it happened, the negotiations for the end of World War One, which turned into the Treaty of Versailles. And there's a lot of historical conjecture about 
he was a more of a kind of dovish peace pro peace figure and maybe the terms of of the treaty of versailles wouldn't have been so onerous on germany um, which ultimately contributed to the rise of the nazis in the second world war if wilson had been able to be more present in those talks but he was laid low by the virus and obviously here in the uk we're just uh, still waiting for our own prime minister to recover from his own kind of near-death experience with covid19 so it's a slightly uncanny uh, parallel um, as that well. That is interesting. I didn't know that. That's that is interesting. But the, I, I think the history of infections down through the history of the world that it has played an enormously significant part in the unfolding of events. And there's no doubt that coronavirus is going to change the world in unforeseen ways over the next uh, years and decades. <laughs> Thanks, John. So I think that's probably a natural point, a good point to draw our conversation to a close for now. We've done a kind of overview of the history of pandemics and plagues going back 2000 years to the Greco-Roman world, all the way up to the 20th century, looking at um, how Christians have responded to times of plague and what we can learn from that. And I think next time we were hoping to have a conversation around COVID-19, today's pandemic, and how that both differs from what we've seen before and what Christians can, can might do about that. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting to ask the question, how is COVID-19 different? And lots of obvious ways in which it's so different from all the pandemics from the past. But also, you know, um, what can we learn from that? And, and what are the specific ways that Christians can respond to this current pandemic, which uh, we're now surrounded with, and, and which in God's sovereignty, he's allowed us to be confronted with? Excellent. Sounds good. I look forward to speaking to you then. episode of matters of life and death if you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about you can find lots more to read listen and watch at john's website he's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the bible to artificial intelligence all free to access and share please visit johnwyatt.com that's j-o-h-n-w-y-a-t-t.com if you've enjoyed this podcast please do share it with friends it can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>